Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Loan forgiveness is a paradigmatic form of debt relief, and the Secretary acted within the heartland of his authority and in line with the central purpose of the HEROES Act in providing that relief here. The president's plan to forgive some student debt goes before the Supreme Court. It's Tuesday, the last day of February, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, new rules are making baseball games shorter, but they're already causing confusion in spring training. And the authors who exposed the origins of climate change denial are out with a new book that takes aim at another cornerstone of corporate propaganda, what they call the big myth of the free market. But first, the Supreme Court is hearing a case today that could affect more than 40 million Americans with student loan debt. Hanging in the balance is the Biden administration's plan to wipe out up to $10,000 of debt for borrowers earning up to $125,000 a year, or up to $250,000 for married couples. Several Republican-led states are suing to stop it. And that prospect brought out a crowd of protesters in front of the court this morning. Student debt is crushing me. D-E-B-T. Student debt is crushing me. D-E-B-T. Producer Catherine Swartz talked to a few of the protesters, including Kylie Burke, a first-year student at Georgetown Law. I'm here today because I believe in student debt cancellation. Um, I saw a sign that said getting a degree shouldn't be a debt sentence. I think that says it all. Um, I think the majority of Americans support it. I think the president supports it. And I think it could even go further than the proposal that he has because student loan debt is debilitating in this country, especially for young people, especially for young minorities. Well, to help us understand the case a little better, we talked to Danielle Douglas-Gabriel of The Washington Post. She spoke to Scott Tong. So the White House is using a 2003 law known as the HEROES Act that essentially after 9-11 gave the federal government the right to postpone payments for members of the military. The statute is broad enough, at least that's what the White House is saying, to apply to any national emergency. And in this case, the pandemic, the argument here is by alleviating some of the debt held by millions of Americans, the federal government can ensure that they are coming out of the pandemic no worse than they were when they went into it. The other issue here is trying to assure that there is not a surge in delinquencies and defaults on student loan payments. There's a lot of concern that people are not in the best financial position to start repaying their loans once the current moratorium that's been in place for almost three years lifts. A number of states have sued, in this case as is now before the high court, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, South Carolina, they argue this violates the separation of powers when it comes to the authority of the executive branch. Can you tell us a little bit more about their argument? Certainly. Their belief, uh, as is the belief of many people who are against this program, is that the executive branch is overstepping its authority. Congress holds the power of the purse. And for a program that costs nearly half a trillion dollars, certainly there's enough um, economic impact here that Congress should have input and the president shouldn't be making a unilateral decision to forgive this much debt. If this challenge succeeds, what does that mean? for the borrowers who have asked for this loan forgiveness? 
certainly uh, it would imperil the program. Uh, I don't haven't heard confirmation yet whether the administration will seek to reinstate the program under any other authority. If they did, the Higher Education Act would probably be uh, the one to do it. But that is not quite as strong as the HEROES Act from what legal experts have told me in this case. But I think, you know, it's important to note that while this debt relief program is garnering a lot of attention, it is only a part of a much larger debt relief strategy that's coming out of the Biden administration. There were a series Mm -hmm. of initiatives that were announced last year that have not faced any kind of legal challenge that will likely produce quite a bit of student loan forgiveness, public service loan forgiveness waiver, the income-driven repayment adjustment plan, All of these measures are meant to alleviate some of the worst performing loans also to ensure that the programs that existed for many through many administrations start to operate and function as they were intended uh, and they have not. So even after this debt relief uh, program is decided one way or the other, I think it's important to note that this administration will likely go down in history as providing and producing some of the grandest amount of debt relief for student loan borrowers that we've we've ever seen. Danielle, you cover the economics of higher education. Is the uncertainty in this case affecting borrowers, affecting lenders already in the student loan space? Oh, certainly. There's a lot of anxiety from borrowers and certainly a lot of concern among lenders about what the outcome of this will be. Now, on the borrower side, there are many people. This is a sweeping program in in terms of how many people could potentially be covered. Uh, Even if they don't see their entire balance forgiven, it is a significant amount for many people. So there's concern about whether that would come through. And then for lenders, I think getting a better sense of what their competition looks like. I, you know, you've heard, probably heard a lot about perverse incentives uh, about this program creating that, where people will mm-hmm. believe that they could borrow more uh, because, yeah, sure, the Biden administration say this is a one-time thing, but who knows? Maybe another administration will decide that they're going to give it another shot. And so that would- Oh, so I'll just take out more money. Yes. Exactly. Or you may see colleges and universities start to increase their prices under the same assumption. All of that is very speculative, but these are some of the things that I think people are thinking about as they're looking at what this program means for the future of student lending. That's Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, National Higher Education Reporter for The Washington Post. Danielle, thanks for the time. Thank you. As we just heard, one of the major legal questions in this case is whether the Republican-led states that are suing should even be allowed to bring the case in the first place. Our next guest agrees with the plaintiffs that Biden's plan oversteps the president's authority, but he's not siding with the states making that argument. Instead, he argues in a brief that those states don't have standing. William Bode is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. And in the brief he filed along with Professor Samuel Bray of Notre Dame, he says the student loan case could set a bad precedent that will make it easier for states to make political changes through the Supreme Court. I do. So the idea of standing is that the people who sue are supposed to be the right people, the proper people, the people who really have skin in the game. And I think here the states are making a political point rather than suing on behalf of you know their own interests. But Missouri in this case claims that under this plan, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, it services some student loans and that they'll lose out on some fees that they charge. Is that not Uh, skin in the game here? 
so that's right. So there is something called Mohila, the Higher Education Loan Authority. It could definitely sue. Uh, it's a separate corporation that has its own power to sue, and it's decided not to sue. And Missouri is trying to sort of uh, use that as a kind of bank shot excuse for Missouri to get into the case. So help us think this through then. What might blue states, as it were, decide to bring if this case of standing becomes an easier case to make? And what might the red states uh, bring? Yeah, so during the last administration, we saw tons of lawsuits from blue states against things the Trump administration did, dealing with, you know, contraception, immigration, you know, some of those cases even went to the Supreme Court. Already now from red states, we're seeing lots of uh, immigration lawsuits, other regulatory lawsuits, every social issue, just about everything the government does. Uh, some state will try to find a way to bring it into court. But why, just trying to understand, why is it a problem that states bring these lawsuits? I mean, they're challenging what they see in this case as presidential overreach. Shouldn't they be able to raise this? Part of the problem is that the courts are supposed to be a forum for law and not just for politics. So the courts are supposed to be limited to sort of more specific legal claims and more specific legal injuries. That's why they don't just rush in to hear anything anytime any Tom, Dick, or Harry has a complaint. And the states have an incentive to bring sort of everything into court. It's a chance to score political points, you know, regardless of whether they have any legal interests. Yeah. I mean, is there anything about the the makeup of the current court that you know, leads you others to think it may lean in one direction or the other? So it's hard to say. The court's obviously become uh, more conservative in some ways, you know, than it was 15 years ago. But these issues about sort of standing in the judiciary, they aren't exactly partisan. You know, in any given case, any given president, different justices might be more or less interested in intervening. So they really go to just a more fundamental principle about uh, what do we want the courts to do here and how comfortable are the justices with having all of these disputes sort of dropped in their lap. Professor, to to a lot of people, this conversation may sound theoretical, you know, a bit of schoolhouse rock about the role of the government and who does what. Why, in your view, is this issue important to all of us? I mean, so it's theoretical, but fundamentally it's about power. Right now we've seen the, the president taking a lot of unilateral executive action on a range of, you know, pocketbook and kitchen table issues that affect people's lives. Uh, because he sees Congress as deadlocked and you know, not necessarily part of the solution. But if this case means that the Supreme Court gets to step in and second-guess that, it's going to stop the Biden administration from doing a lot of the bread-and-butter things it wants to do. I see. And and in future administrations, it could just give the Supreme Court that much more power than it does yeah, this, now? Exactly. The same thing that happens to this administration will happen to the next uh, administration, even if it's conservative, it'll move the ability of, of the president to sort of respond to the people uh, and give it instead of the courts who don't answer to anybody. Professor William Bode is with the University of Chicago Law School. Professor Bode, thanks for the time. Thank you very much. Coming up, is the pitch clock ruining baseball or saving it? Peter O'Dowd steps up to the plate after the break. Baseball's spring training has gotten off to a dramatic start this year. Fans across the country are still talking about this game-ending call during a game Saturday between the Boston Red Sox and Atlanta Braves. It was the bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, full count, when Atlanta's Cal Conley stepped into the batter's box. And then, suddenly... He's out. Damn, called strike three! Wow! This is major! 
strike three called with the bases loaded in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth. This is baseball in 2023. What in the world happened? Well, it turns out Conley didn't get into the batter's box soon enough. He violated one of the many new rules that Major League Baseball is trotting out this year to make the game more exciting. Chelsea Janes joins us now. She covers baseball for the Washington Post. And Chelsea, what a moment there. The big leagues had never seen anything like that before. The game just ended. It did. It's something that uh, I think skeptics of these new rules that require batters to be in the box quickly and pitchers to deliver their next pitch quickly under a timer. Um, You know, skeptics of those rules thought, what if a game ends this way? And the first day that everyone's playing with the rule, it happens as these things go. But I don't think that's something they expect to continue. The whole point of running these rules out in spring training is that people get used to them and and don't violate them when it really matters. But that was a, a chaotic way to kick off this new era. So help us understand what's going on here. Cal Conley took too long to step back into the batter's box. That's why the umpire called him out. What is this new pitch clock and what does it mean for pitchers and hitters? So the pitch clock is something that they've been testing out for a while in the minor leagues. And the goal is to make pitchers spend less time wandering around the mound and hitters spend less time wandering around home plate between pitches. So pitchers with no men on base have 15 seconds to get the ball back after the last pitch and deliver a new one. Hitters have until there are eight seconds left on that clock to be in the box and be ready. And if a pitcher does not deliver the ball in time, uh, that is an automatic ball on the hitter. If the batter is not in the box in time, as we saw in that game, that is an automatic strike. And they have more time with runners on base so that the pitchers can take their time and sort of look over and, and keep the runners in check. But by and large, the goal is to get everybody moving a little faster. Why does baseball want to get those games moving along faster? What's the point? You know, I think that their sense of part of why baseball has potentially lost some of its mass appeal in recent decades is that the game has slowed down. Everyone has learned by looking at data that you want to throw the ball as hard as you possibly can. You want to get yourself in the absolute right position to hit and really optimize every last movement. And what that means is that people are taking the time to rest between pitches and get their velocity up. They're taking the time to really think and and call time and try to get in everyone's heads. And And what that's led to are games that are 30 minutes to an hour longer than they were, say, in the 80s or even the 90s. And I think Major League Baseball looked at it and said, it's just boring. There's a lot of downtime that we don't need. We need to pick up the pace of play, the pace of action. Well, there certainly was some action at the end of that game we've been talking about. (laughs) Um, Players in the minor leagues, you've said this, uh, they've been using the pitch clock already. Is there evidence that it's working? Are the games getting shorter? You know, they are. And they did in the minor leagues. I believe the average game time dropped from the season before to the season with the pitch clock by 25 minutes. And what was interesting is that when Major League Baseball tried it in the big leagues on Saturday for the first full day of spring training games, the time of those games dropped by 25 minutes. You know, they have every reason to expect that that game time change will continue. We should point out that it's not the only major rule change this year. Among others, the bases are also bigger. Why? What's that about? <laughs> the bases are bigger. And, and, you know, your question is one I think everyone asked when they heard that. It doesn't seem like a major deal, but I think the goal is more safety oriented that, you know, there are a lot of plays on the old bases where, you know, guys would collide or it just forced people into very sort of tight quarters and, and tough decisions. And I think the goal of the slightly bigger bases is to give everyone room, to give the fielder room to be there, to give this player room to slide and still find a base, to basically just make it easier to advance and just sort of create as much action as possible. We know some 
fans love it. Your colleague at the Post, Rick Riley, wrote about the new rules and said, baseball is fun again. (laughs) Um, But what about the players and coaches who are the ones playing these games? How are they adjusting to the new rules? You know, one of the things you can sort of count on with baseball is that people will not like new things. It's a very tradition-oriented sport for the sake of tradition at times. And so I think initially there was a lot of skepticism. You know, sort of a perfect example of the, of the transition that people have gone through is Max Scherzer, the Cy Young Award winner, future Hall of Famer, who when Major League Baseball said they were going to put in a pitch clock, he was annoyed. He said, what the heck? You know, we don't want that. That changes the game. And then by by the time he's pitching Saturday, he's saying, oh, no, I can manipulate this to my own purposes. I can use this to gain an advantage. And I think that's sort of where everyone is now. It's it, The rules are here. It's going to get everyone home faster every night for 162 nights a year. It'll become a part of the fabric, just like everything else does after the initial sort of hullabaloo. And hopefully uh, we can put the kids to bed before 10 o'clock if they go to the game. (laughs) Chelsea James is a national baseball writer for The Washington Post. Thanks, as always, for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. After the break, Scott speaks with the authors of a new book blowing up what they call the big myth of the free market. Stick around. Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway know a provocative subject. Their best-selling 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt, explored how four physicists laid the groundwork for climate change denial, how they argued against government regulation and in favor of the free market. Well, the idea of a pure, unadulterated free market, the idea and how it came to be, is the story of their new book. It's called The Big Myth, and Naomi Oreskes, science historian at Harvard, joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Scott. Great to be with you. Your book, I gather, acknowledges a useful nature of market forces to set prices, to reward work. Is the myth something you call market fundamentalism? Exactly. So the book is not a scree against markets. Markets are tools, and like all tools, they're very good for some things and not so good for others. What we're trying to show in the book is how an ideal of the free market in the singular, was put forward by business interests in the United States as a way to fight back against regulation of the workplace, to fight back against people who were trying to limit child labor, and to persuade the American people that government regulation of the marketplace was not in our interest. Well, this is a long history lesson where you and Eric Conway follow the money, as it were. We do. Yeah, and early on, one of the key proponents of this message is the National Association of Manufacturers. What was the NAM agenda, as you write? Trade groups were a major place where this argument was developed. So the National Association of Manufacturers was America's largest trade organization in the 1930s and 40s, and they were a major player in this movement to try to create an ideology promoting free markets, pro-market, anti-government. They were involved in trying to block almost all aspects of the New Deal. And even today, they're still involved in trying to block meaningful climate action. Well, and is one of the key arguments made by these industry groups that economic freedom goes hand-in-hand with individual freedom? Exactly. So what they tried to argue that if you allow the government to regulate factories, workplaces, other things, that by compromising the economic freedom of business people, you would be on a slippery slope to compromising all freedoms. Well, in this history telling, there are a lot of dots you connect. I want to bring up a couple dots from popular culture. 
One of them is the Little House on the Prairie books, which many of us know became a massively watched TV series. Shout out to us children of the 1970s. Here is one scene. We were going to have lunch together. I made sandwiches. Oh, dagnabbit. Listen, uh, I'd love to, darling, but... Uh, you got to keep working. Here, here now. None of them long faces now. The sooner I get done working, the sooner we can head off a walnut grove. Help us understand, is there something about these books or the TV show based on the books where this framing of the free market is embedded? Yes. So one thing we show in the book is how incredibly extensive these propaganda campaigns were. And one of the most, I would say, sad and heartbreaking parts of this story is the truth about the Little House on the Prairie series. So like millions of girls, I grew up reading those books, loving those books, which were marketed by the publishers, the true life story of Laura Ingalls Wilder growing up as a young girl on the American frontier. And the stories are didactic stories about how the family survived and thrived through dint of hard effort, labor, work, family, love in a nuclear family, and with little or no help from the government. In fact, in the stories, the government just gets in the way. But what scholars have shown that actually these stories were not the true life stories of Laura Ingalls Wilder. In fact, Laura didn't even write these stories. Really? She She didn't write them? No. She would put down notes for episodes that happened in her life, but they were crafted into what were essentially libertarian parables by her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, who Mm. was a leading libertarian thinker and a close friend of Herbert Hoover. Rose Wilder Lane was part of a network of libertarians that included not just the ex-president, but also the president of Sun Oil Company, J. Howard Pugh, and a whole network of powerful and influential business leaders who encouraged her to use these stories to put forward libertarian ideology. You also write about a very popular program in the 50s called the General Electric Theater. Let's hear a little bit of the opening of that show. In research, in engineering, in manufacturing skill, at General Electric, progress is our most important product. And the host of that show was one Ronald Reagan. You argue that some of this messaging, this propaganda was built into this show. Yes. So General Electric Theater is a really important part of this story because it links the business interests, popular culture, and American politics. Each week, the program would show a story, and it was a very well-made television program, but almost all of them tell didactic stories of individual enterprise and people succeeding with no help from the government. And this is the whole theme that GE then pushes forward, the idea that just leave things to the private sector, leave things to free enterprise, we'll have great success in our lives, and of course, great success in industry as GE creates better light bulbs and and electricity. Mm -hmm. But the story is complicated on multiple levels. First of all, while GE is promoting a story of free enterprise, they're actually conspiring to rig electricity markets. And a few years later, they would be prosecuted by the federal government. The other important piece of this story is about Reagan himself. When Ronald Reagan first went to work for General Electric, he was a pro-union New Deal Democrat. By the time he comes out, he's an anti-union, anti-government Republican. And that transition happens under the guidance of GE executives who send him out on the speaking circuit. He goes to GE communities. He gives talks at Rotary Clubs promoting the GE ideology. 
And at the end of this period, he comes out of it not just with a new political ideology, but with a set of powerful and wealthy corporate backers who then finance his campaign to run for governor of California. Yeah, governor, and then, of course, he becomes the president president, in in, in 1981. And in the Reagan era, the 1980s, is when this power of the market is such a defining one in our conversation and in our culture. So many of us remember the 1987 film Wall Street, starring Michael Douglas, who made this famous speech. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. It is a sentence, an idea that is so imprinted in our brain. I guess I want to ask you about today. Your book is a long history book, but as far as our political discourse today, how is this power of the free market or the big myth, as your book calls market fundamentalism, how does it play out today? Well, it continues to play out, and we see in conservative and Republican opposition to meaningful action on climate change, to meaningful regulation of drugs that we have now have, you know, the opioid crisis, which, by the way, there is no opioid crisis in Europe because these drugs were more adequately regulated, massive income inequality, tax cuts for the rich, all based on this idea that if you just let business people, rich people do their thing, that somehow we will all benefit, even though the evidence consistently shows that that is in fact not true. You know, the movie obviously is a critique of this ideology and not too many people today would stand up in public and say greed is good. Mm. But people do continue to say that self-interest is good, that self-interest drives entrepreneurs, it drives people to invent things and be creative. And that's true up to a point, but we also know that self-interest has to be tempered against the common good. And that when we have inadequate regulation of markets and workplaces, people get hurt. And of course, this connects us to one other really important part of our story, which is the misrepresentation of Adam Smith. So the same business people who are talking to Rose Wilder Lane and creating propagandistic television and radio Mm -hmm. are also working to influence academic research. And so we have a chapter in the book where we talk about the University of Chicago and how business interests fund something at the University of Chicago called the Free Market Project. The economist George Stigler, who's part of this Free Market Project, publishes an edited version of The Wealth of Nations in which he takes out of the original book all the many places where Adam Smith talked about the need for regulation. So Smith, for example, has a very extensive discussion of why you have to regulate banks. But in Stigler's version, which is then... He cherry-picks, and there is no discussion of the need to regulate banks. Yeah. Um, Finally, Naomi Oreskes, I want to ask, your book goes into market fundamentalism and the the forces and the money that have contributed to this idea over time. I wonder if you see a fundamentalism in another way, as in cynicism about the market. That is, there are people who, if you have a conversation and you say the word industry, there is a visceral negative reaction. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that we have witnessed in the last 40 years so many egregious abuses and so many problems that we thought we had solved that in many ways we had solved have now come back because of deregulation or inadequate enforcement of existing regulations. So I think this has made some people angry, 
and it's brought back a kind of hostility and anger towards business and industry that existed back in the 1930s. And it's also made some people want to say a pox on capitalism. So part of our argument is to argue for a kind of sensible common ground. We're not saying that business is bad. We need business and industry as part of having an economy. Uh, and we need markets because markets are quite good for many things, but they also need to be properly regulated. Naomi Oreskes is co-author of The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Naomi, thanks for the time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. And we have an excerpt of the book at hereandnow.org. And while you're at hereandnow.org for that excerpt from The Big Myth, check out our other stories. Today, we've got a look at a retired general who has become a key supporter of the Defense Department's efforts to rename American military bases and ships that were named after members of the Confederacy. When I was at sixth grade, I was bused across town from the white elementary school to the segregated all-black school. And what was the name of the segregated all-black school? Robert E. Lee Elementary School. That's pretty ironic. It's, it's not ironic. It's on purpose because it is there to protest against integration and to show black people that white people still have the power, have political power. It's a thumb in the, in the eye. Hereandnow.org for more on that. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Julia Corcoran, and Emiko Tamagawa. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.